Book Five, Chapter One, Part Five of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Five Resources. Chapter One, Part Five, Confiscation. During the period of active confiscation, moreover, when the moneyed classes were either ruined or anticipating ruin, it was sometimes impossible to effect sales, and in the pressure and confusion, property was allowed to go to waste. A letter of March twenty, fifteen twelve, to the receiver of Huesca and Lerida speaks of the uninhabited houses and lands which had not been sold, because fair prices could not be had, and which were perishing in consequence, and he was told to see whether he could not sell them on ground-rent, redeemable or irredeemable. It is impossible not to see in this the commencement of the despoblados, which were the despair of Spanish statesmen for more than two centuries, so in 1531, the dwelling of Jativa upon Sanz, on whom it was confiscated, was allowed to fall into such disrepair that no one would take it, subject to the encumbrances, and the rentals did not meet the ground rents, so it was abandoned to the encumbrancers. The manner in which property melted away is seen in the settlement made in 1519 of the estate of Major de Monzon, burnt for heresy. It was appraised at 110,197 maravedis, but against this were the expenses of the woman and her children while in prison, amounting to 41,100, and the widower Diego de Adrade finally agreed to take the estate for 17,000 maravedis, subject to whatever claims there might be against it. Everybody concerned grasped at what he could, in 1532, the Valencia Tribunal sent Rafael Diego de Mallorca to arrest and fetch Leonor Juan, wife of Ramón Martín, who was blind. She was reconciled with confiscation, and Charles V made a grant to the husband of a hundred libras from the estate. But when the account was made up, the expenses did not leave enough to pay him. One item against which he protested was twenty-five ducats to Diego for twenty days' work, when his salary was only eighty ducats a year. The Suprema consequently suspended the item, but in 1545 Inquisitor General Tavera ordered it to be paid. It is perhaps superfluous to insist upon what was inevitable in an age when integrity was exceptional in public affairs, and in a business affording peculiar temptations to malversation, through the fluctuating uncertainty of receipts, and the difficulty of effecting competent supervision. Ferdinand did his best to establish accountability, and his incessant activity exhibits itself in his minute criticisms on his auditor's reports of the accounts of receivers, but even his vigilance could not prevent frauds and peculation nor was it possible for him to penetrate the mysteries lurking behind statements of receipts and expenditures, when the receivers were apt to use the funds as their own. 
when Juan Denbin, the receiver of Zaragoza, died and his accounts were balanced, after all possible allowance were made, he was found in 1500 to owe 9,367 sueldos, which Ferdinand vainly endeavored to collect from his heir, the abbot of Veruela. Denbin's deputy at Calatayud improved on his example, and was found, in 1499, to be short 24,000 sueldos, of which he paid 8,000, and promised the rest at the rate of 4,000 a year. The installment of 1500 was obtained after some delay, and when we last hear of him, Ferdinand was endeavoring to secure that of 1501. It is easy to understand the chronic reluctance of such officials to render statements, and Ferdinand's correspondence shows how difficult it was to force them to do so. There is much suggestiveness in a letter of October 15, 1498, to the Maestre Racional, or Auditor-General, of Catalonia, telling him that, as Jaime de la Ram, the former receiver, and Pedro de Badilla, the present one, refuse under various pretexts to hand over their books so that their accounts can be settled. He is to take legal steps to compel it. They can have until March 1st, 1499, to obey, and if they still refuse, their salaries are to be stopped. When the books are obtained, no time is to be lost in striking a balance, and especial care is to be taken that they do not give themselves fraudulent credits. Juan de Montaña, receiver of Huesca and Lerida, was another whose accounts were chronically in arrear. This continued to the end of Ferdinand's reign. In 1515 we find him writing to a receiver who had flatly refused to obey an order of Jiménez to go to Valencia with his books and papers and render an account of his collections, for persistence in which the king threatened him with prosecution. After his death, Jimenez labored energetically to evoke order out of disorder. He appointed a receiver-general, with power to collect by levy, execution, and sale, all monies due by the receivers, and all fines, penances, commutations, and rehabilitations. Moreover, to a new auditor-general, Hernando de Villa, he addressed a cedula, February 21, 1517, reciting that the receivers had collected from the confiscations and other sources, large sums of which, for a long time, they had rendered no account. Wherefore he was instructed to visit every tribunal, to demand an accounting from the receiver, to examine all papers and vouchers, and ascertain the balances due, while all notaries were instructed to furnish whatever documents he might call for, and he was empowered to enforce his orders with punishment at discretion. Possibly this may have produced improvement, but if so, it was but temporary. We have just seen how recalcitrant about his accounts was Pedro de Badilla, the receiver of Barcelona. He did not improve, and when he died in 1513, he left his office in bad condition. He was replaced by Martín de Marrano, transferred from Majorca, who proved to be no better. In 1520, Cardinal Adrián, to punish him, reduced his salary to 2,880 sueldos, and then, April 16, 1521, wrote a long and indignant letter to the inquisitors, principally devoted to Marrano's misdeeds, 
among which was refusal to settle his accounts and alleging claims for which he had no vouchers yet to all appearances with the inexplicable tenderness shown to official culprits he was retained in office the tribunal of sicily where the confiscations were large was in even worse hands diego de obregon who served as receiver from fifteen hundred to fifteen fourteen left its affairs in lamentable confusion he was succeeded by garci cid who was sent to reduce it to order how he accomplished this is seen in a report of benito mercader sent as inspector describing the financial management as characterized by every vice while peculation was rife among all the officials garci cid returned to spain in fifteen twenty and it was not until fifteen forty two that the suprema ordered him to pay the one thousand four hundred twenty ducats which he was found to owe as well as what he had collected of nine thousand three hundred more which were charged against him things did not mend for as we have seen surita who became auditor-general for aragon in fifteen forty eight describes his untangling of the sicilian accounts which had not been received for twenty years and were in the utmost disorder it is evident that the receipts of the royal treasury formed but a portion of the amount wrung from the victims what those receipts were we have no means of knowing but in fifteen twenty four the licenciado tristan de leon in an elaborate memorial addressed to charles v asserted that ferdinand and isabella obtained from this source the enormous amount of ten million ducats which greatly assisted them in their war with the moors occasionally we have scattering indications of the productiveness of inquisitorial labors thus in the little temporary geronimite inquisition of guadalupe in fourteen eighty five the sovereigns appropriated the proceeds to the erection of a royal residence for their frequent devotional visits to the shrine it was a magnificent palace the cost of which two million seven hundred thirty two thousand three hundred thirty three maravedis was almost wholly defrayed from this source in fourteen eighty six the valencia tribunal must have been productive for ferdinand wrote from galicia to the receiver juan ram to supply all that was needful for a fleet as he had not the money in hand at the court the impression produced on contemporaries is conveyed in hernando de pulgar's grim remark when describing the violent expulsion from toledo of the count of fuensalida he adds that the populace like rigid inquisitors of the faith found heresies in the properties of the count's peasants which they plundered and burnt the large sums which were raised in the various compositions in return for the very slender exemptions offered are an index of the magnitude of the confiscations and so is a proposition made to ferdinand and declined of a loan of six hundred thousand ducats if he would transfer the adjudication of such matters to the secular courts although receipts were perhaps diminished with the weeding out of the judaizing new christians we have seen volume one page two twenty the offer made in fifteen nineteen to charles v to provide an endowment which would meet all the salaries and expenses of the inquisition 
and in addition to pay him four hundred thousand ducats in compensation for the abandonment of the confiscations. Soon after this, another offer was made of seven hundred thousand ducats, which seems to have been held under consideration for a year or two. During the remainder of the sixteenth century, the constant drafts by the Suprema on the several tribunals shows that they were, as a rule, supporting themselves, with a surplus for the central organization, although occasionally a tribunal in bad luck had to be helped by some more fortunate brother. The grant, in 1559, of a prebend in each cathedral and collegiate church, supplied the growing deficiency of confiscations, but the latter received a notable augmentation after the annexation of Portugal in 1580. This was followed by a large influx of new Christians from the poorer to the richer kingdom, where their business ability speedily led to the acquisition of wealth, while their attachment to the ancient faith gave to the Inquisition a new and lucrative field of operations. We shall see hereafter the curious transaction by which, in 1604, they purchased a brief immunity, and this led soon afterwards to an offer by the new Christians of Seville and the western provinces of one million six hundred thousand ducats for a forty-year suspension of confiscation, coupled with the release of descendants from disabilities and infamy, the rating of testimony as its true worth, and papal intervention with the king in the rendering of sentences. The offer was seriously considered, but an investigation of the treasury accounts showed that, in its financial aspect, it would be a losing bargain for the crown, which would have to support the Inquisition, and it was rejected. The persecutions in Peru and Mexico furnished evidence against wealthy merchants at home, which was profitably utilized. In 1635, the Pereiras, who were large contractors in Madrid, were implicated and also, quote, the Pasariños and all the rich merchants of Seville, end quote. Then, too, Francisco Ulan of Madrid, rated at 300,000 ducats, was accused, and we hear of the arrest of Juan Rodriguez Musa, described as a wealthy merchant of Seville. It is true that when in 1633 Juan Núñez Sarabia was arrested, and his book showed a fortune of six hundred thousand ducats, hope was dashed by Gabriel Ortiz de Sotomayor, a member of the Suprema, who claimed the major part of it as a deposit by him as curador of Doña Maria Ortiz, and as executor of Don Bernabé de Vivanco. Still, a class of culprits such as these, composed of rich bankers and merchants, gave ample opportunity of swelling the assets of the Holy Office. In 1654, in an auto de fe at Cuenca, there were fifty-five Judaizers, many of them evidently in easy circumstances, one of whom said, on the way to the Brasero, that his chances of heaven were costing him two hundred thousand ducats. Yet these were uncertain resources and we have seen that the Suprema, in its budget for 1657, only reckoned on receiving from the tribunals 755,520 marbedis, or about 2,000 ducats. 
but on the other hand in a consulta of may eleventh sixteen seventy six it boasted that within a few years it had contributed to the royal treasury confiscations amounting to seven hundred seventy two thousand seven hundred forty eight ducats vejon and eight hundred eighty four thousand nine hundred seventy nine pesos in silver in addition to this the confiscations were not only defraying any deficiencies in its income but it was gradually becoming richer for in the years sixteen sixty one to sixteen sixty eight the surplus of the suprema and tribunals invested in government securities amounted to twenty one thousand sixty four ducats towards the end of the seventeenth century the persecution of the judaizing new christians became sharper and we have seen the large results obtained in sixteen seventy nine by the majorca tribunal from its wholesale prosecution of the conversos of palma this persecution lasted till near the middle of the eighteenth century with a large number of victims and as they belonged in great part to the commercial class the receipts must have been substantial in sixty six autos de fe celebrated between seventeen twenty one and seventeen twenty seven there were seven hundred seventy six sentences of confiscation many of these were unproductive for confiscation was included in the sentence whether the culprit had property or not and the formula confiscacion de los bienes que no tiene of the property which he has not got is one of frequent occurrence but there were doubtless enough possessed of wealth to make a fair average then there were occasional windfalls from others than judaizers as in the case of melchor macanas in seventeen sixteen the financial management seems to not have improved since the days of ferdinand no account of the estate was rendered until december thirty first seventeen twenty three this shows that his real estate brought in a revenue of one thousand two hundred sixty nine libras indicating a value of about twenty five thousand libras there had been collected nine thousand three hundred twenty libras seven sueldos ten ducats and expended five thousand eight hundred thirty eight libras one sueldo leaving a balance of three thousand four hundred eighty two libras six sueldos ten ducats if the results were not greater it was not owing to any scruples melchor's brother luis had an interest of seven hundred seventy doubloons on the books of the glass factory of tortosa it was guessed that he had not sufficient capital to justify such an investment so the madrid tribunal october twenty one seventeen sixteen ordered valencia to sequestrate it another piece of good fortune was the discovery in seventeen twenty seven of an organization of moriscos who had preserved their faith and whose confiscations were so profitable that the principal informer diego diaz received as reward a perpetual pension of one hundred ducats a year as the eighteenth century advanced confiscation gradually grew obsolete heresy had been so successfully extirpated that relaxation and reconciliation grew rarer and rarer in the records of the toledo tribunal extending to seventeen ninety four there is no sentence of confiscation later than seventeen thirty eight 
In the census of all the tribunals, about the year 1745, there is but a single juez de los bienes, though occasionally we find that office tacked on to an inquisitorship, as in Valencia in 1795, where in addition a fifty-two libras ten sueldos is made to the salary in consequence, but that it was sinecure is apparent from the fact that, in a record of the sentences of the tribunal, from 1780 to 1820, there is not a case of confiscation. It is not without interest to examine what was the use made of the large receipts during the early period, when they were controlled by Ferdinand and Charles V, and before the Suprema monopolized them for the support of the tribunals, save on occasional concession extorted by the crown. Bulgar and Zurita loyally assure us that large as they were, the sovereigns employed them solely for the advancement of the faith, the war with Granada, the maintenance of the Inquisition, and other pious uses. Supported by these authorities, modern writers assume that no covetousness can be attributed to the sovereigns in the employment of these means for the public weal. Unfortunately, the records do not bear out these flattering assurances. The Inquisition, of course, had the first claim on the product of its labors, and its expenses were defrayed from this source. I have met with but two cases, one in 1500 and one in 1501, where a salary was paid from the royal treasury, and in both of these the recipient was Diego Lopez, member of the Suprema and royal secretary, a duplicate position which might justify calling upon either source of supply. During the war with Granada, ending with 1491, undoubtedly the funds derived from the industry of the Holy Office were largely employed in its prosecution, which according to the standards of the age, was not only a patriotic, but an eminently pious use. While this drain continued, it is not likely that much of the confiscations was otherwise employed, and I have met with but one or two pious gifts. In 1486, a thousand sueldos to aid in the construction of an infirmary for the Franciscan convent of Santa Maria de Jesus, and in 1491, a rent of 500 sueldos a year to the church of San Juan of Calatayud. After the conquest of Granada, we find occasional grants to convents and churches, but they are not frequent, and as a rule, are meager in comparison with the profusion lavished on courtiers and servants. The only large recipient of bounty seems to have been Ferdinand's favorite Geronimite convent of Santa Engracia of Saragossa, to which, in 1495, he gave 13,000 sueldos for the purchase of certain lands and gardens, and in 1498, 10,000 more. There was, in addition, a yearly allowance of 6,000 sueldos for the maintenance of the frailes. The payment of this was suspended in 1498, on account of lack of funds. But Ferdinand, after some hesitation, made this good by transferring to the convent certain censos that had been appropriated to the Inquisition. In his correspondence of this period, up to 1515, there occur a few more pious expenditures, but all are of moderate amount, and in no way justify the assertion 
that the confiscations were largely expended in this manner. The acquisitive secretary Calcena was a much more frequent beneficiary. His position gave him exceptional facilities for watching the confiscations, and of profiting by his knowledge. His name continually recurs as the recipient of gifts of censos, houses, and money, and he had indirect means of participating, as we have seen when he shared in the ruin of the archdeacon of Castro. Some light is thrown on the methods in vogue when in 1500 the estate of Francisco López of Calatayud was confiscated. In this, certain houses valued at 10,000 sueldos were included, which the son of López hoped to save, as belonging to his mother's dowry. But the father's papers had been seized, and the marriage settlement was inaccessible. The son thereupon promised Galsena a third of the valuation for a copy of the document. The effort failed, the houses were confiscated, and Ferdinand, compassionating Calcena's loss, not only gave him the promised third, but pledged himself to defend the title in case it should be attacked. This suggests a possible source of profit in favoring the sufferers by confiscation. Many instances have been cited above of Ferdinand's kindly consideration in mitigating exceptional cases of hardship, and we shall have occasion to refer to others. It would be pleasant to attribute them wholly to a side of his character that has not hitherto revealed itself in history. But one cannot escape an uneasy suspicion that as Calcena was the channel through which these bounties flowed, in some cases at least, the successful petitioners were those who had made it worth his while to aid them. The abuse of making to favorites grants of confiscations antedated the establishment of the Inquisition. The Cortes of 1447 petitioned against it, and Juan II assented in a fashion too equivocal to hold out much prospect of improvement. It continued, and, when the property of the new Christians came pouring in, Ferdinand yielded to the greed of his courtiers and nobles, with a profuseness which explains where much of the products of confiscation disappeared. His recklessness in this matter is illustrated by a complaint, in 1500, of the Admiral of Castile, representing that he had been given a censo on a biscondado of Cabrera, confiscated in the estate of Juan Beltran, but that certain parties to whom it had also been granted were suing him for it. Ferdinand evidently kept no record of these heedless gifts, for he could remember nothing as to this duplication, and he applied to the tribunal for a list of the provisions respecting the estate, so that he could decide between the claimants. His only serious collision with the Inquisition arose from this source, and he found its censures more effective than his own. His lavishness kept the tribunals drained to the point that frequently there was no money to pay the salaries. As early as 1488, the inquisitors assembled at Valladolid complained of this and supplicated the sovereigns to order receivers to provide for salaries before honoring royal drafts. If they failed to keep sufficient funds on hand for salaries, they should be subject to removal by inquisitors. 
This was ineffective. The royal treasury was chronically bankrupt. Endurance ceased to be a virtue, and the question came to a head at the close of 1497. On November 15th, Ferdinand wrote to receiver Juan Ruiz of Zaragoza to pay some small amounts, less than a hundred ducats in all, chiefly needed for an inspection and reform of Franciscan convents then on foot. He knew, he said, that the Zaragoza tribunal was in great straits, but he could not furnish the money himself, and means must be found to raise it, without compelling him to write again. Ruiz, however, refused to make the payments, stating that the inquisitors-general had placed him under excommunication if he should pay any royal grants. Ferdinand shifted the order to the receiver of fines and penances, but the inquisitors-general had been beforehand with him by removing that official. Thus baffled, he wrote to them, January 28, 1498, telling them that these payments were absolutely necessary, and he had nothing wherewith to meet them. Besides, there were other pressing demands. The Cortes were about to meet at Zaragoza, and he had ordered certain alterations in the Aljaferia to accommodate him during his residence, the cost of which Ruiz refused to pay, and the work was stopped. There was also the tomb of his father and mother, with alabaster statues, which he was building at the abbey of Poblet, the burial-place of the kings of Aragon, at a cost of fifteen hundred ducats. Five thousand sueldos were due to the architect, Maestre Gil Morian, and when Ruiz refused to pay this from the confiscations, Ferdinand ordered the amount to be collected from the ground-rent of Parascuellos, but it chanced that Ruiz himself owed that ground-rent, and was in no haste to pay it. Meanwhile the salaries were paid, but the excommunication still hung over Ruiz, and he refused obstinately to furnish money for these needs, and for some more that were crowding in. February 28th, Ferdinand vainly endeavored to induce the Inquisitor to make Ruiz yield by excommunicating him, and he then appealed to Suarez de Fuentelsas, one of the Inquisitor's general, but equally without success. Finally, on March 30th, he wrote to Torquemada by a special messenger, with orders to bring an answer, telling him that as the salaries were paid, the excommunication must be lifted, for he would not permit it. This was successful, and on April 10th he wrote again, promising that in future he would not make grants from the confiscations and penances. On April 20th he communicated to Ruiz the removal of the excommunication, and urged the speedy completion of the alterations of the Aljaferia and the payment of Santa Gracia of what was due. Thus ended this episode, which sheds a curious light on the relations of Ferdinand with the Inquisition, and on the precarious nature of public finance at the time. The excommunication had not been confined to Saragossa, nor was it removed elsewhere when Saragossa paid its salaries. In July, 1500, we find Ferdinand arguing with obdurate Juan de Montaña, receiver of Huesca and Lerida, that it did not apply to the completion of an old donation to the church of Lerida, 
which had never been fully paid. We hear nothing subsequently of the censure, though complaints continued of salaries in arrears, and the archdeacon of Almasan, who was inquisitor of Calatayud, was consequently unable to pay his debts, when in 1500 he was transferred to Barcelona. The tribunal of Valencia was hopelessly bankrupt, when in 1501 there came a lucky composition, with the heirs of Juan Masip, for sixty thousand sueldos, which Ferdinand ordered to be applied to its liabilities, so that, for once, it might be out of debt. It is scarce necessary to add that Ferdinand's promise to make no more grants was violated almost as soon as made. In the profusion which kept the tribunals exhausted, it by no means followed that those who had no influence profited by the royal favor. In 1493, Ferdinand granted to Leonor Hernández two thousand sueldos as a marriage portion. Under various pretexts, payment was evaded. Leonor married and died, leaving the claim to her husband and brother, who in 1502 procured from Ferdinand an order for its immediate settlement, but whether this was honored is problematical. Even more delayed was a concession in 1491 to Martin Marin of Calatayud, of three thousand sueldos on the confiscations of his father and mother-in-law. In 1512 Marin represented that he had never been able to obtain it, and Ferdinand ordered its payment forthwith. These postponements were not always due to poverty. In 1491, a grant was made to Anton del Mur, royal alguacil of a vineyard, forming part of the confiscated estate of Pascual de Santa Cruz. Receiver Ruiz of Saragossa made answer that the vineyard had been sold, but when the king ordered him to make over the proceeds to del Mur, the latter got nothing, and Ruiz managed fraudulently to keep the vineyard in the hands of a third party. After nineteen years, Del Mur, in 1510, revived the matter, when Ferdinand ordered the inquisitor and receiver to find out who held the vineyard, and by what title, and, if it was not found that Ruiz had sold it for a just price, Del Mur was to be placed in possession. End of Book 5, Chapter 1, Part 5 Recording by Guero.